Hi, this is Ann Doherty, and I'm here today with Alum co-founder Sarah Convenience as we kick off year two of Alum's podcast, Current. Happy 2021, everybody. I think we're all excited to be on the other side of 2020. Um, Sarah, before we jump in and kind of reflect on um, all of the things we were thinking about with respect to this new year, um, how are you doing? I am well. I'm I can't believe we're heading into year two of the podcast. It feels like it was just an idea not that long ago. So it's exciting we're here and exciting that people are listening. So um that that makes for a great day. How about you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Twenty twenty one is almost as weird as twenty twenty, although I think we're <laughs> less caught off guard. Um I am sitting in Arcasita and it is snowing in Tucson and I have a tortoise behind me and a cat. So if you hear any scratching or loud meowing, um, that would be them, but we'll just kind of muscle through it. But I am excited for this combo. I'm excited for the podcast and I'm excited for everything we've got coming up this year. Yeah, you might be the only person who gets to say, please excuse the noises of my tortoise uh, during the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) that's probably true so um Sarah you know 20 as I said 2021 has just been so jam-packed that it really feels like 2020 was eons ago um but before we jump into talking about 2021 I think it's worth giving 2020 its due and processing some of the things that uh, we're proud of Um, So what stands out to you as the most memorable moment for a loom? What are you most proud of? It's funny reflecting on this because I think back to late February, March, when we made the decision to send people home. And it was this completely terrifying moment where I I remember thinking, are are we going to be here in six months? What's going to happen? We spent all this time and effort to build this company and Um, have this amazing team. And it felt so uncertain. And, you know, once we, we, we just moved, you know, I think that's what a loom does best is that we um, in moments of uncertainty or where there's things that need to be addressed, we just jump in and um, tend to, to keep ourselves really busy. And in 2020, I think that served us really well. I think, you know, I'm most proud of how quickly this team was able to pull together really useful and timely content and and push it out there. I think our team was incredible in responding in almost real time to the moments that we faced in 2020. And let's face it, there were so many moments and, you know, the content on COVID early on, our conversations with um, property managers and landlords and uh, people who were running contracting businesses I think they were so important, um, giving giving people who were really struggling as well and scared as well a voice um, and, and the ability to share what they were going through and thinking and needing from the energy sector. And then our series on uh, diversity and equity inclusion, um, I was really proud of that. I think we had some amazing speakers. You know, I felt like we were jumping in and leading in conversations in our industry, but we were able to do it thoughtfully and with a really wide range of amazing speakers. Um, You know, and I also feel really proud of the hard work our team did both on projects and for our clients, but also in really looking at ourselves. We had those great sessions with um, Visceral Change, uh, looking at DEI within our company and looking at ourselves and our team was vulnerable and honest and just felt like we had a really strong year of excellent discussions and needed discussions and sometimes therapeutic discussions. So I'm, I'm most proud of our ability to, to, to do all of that in a way that was productive and helpful and uh, pushed us in the industry forward. How about you? You know, as you were talking about those early conversations with COVID and when everything hit in early March, and I think Geez, I think that it may have even been mid-February when we made the call to ground our team for travel because we were slated to uh, travel to New York, where, as everyone knows, was the epicenter 
of the outbreak, you know, in the earliest days of it. And um, I just remember the sobering feeling we all had. And there's that, that sense that, you know, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe this isn't as big as it is, you know, and in fact, it was as big as we thought it was going to be and bigger. I mean, if you remember, we thought we'd be in this for two weeks, let alone what will now probably be a year, if not longer. So it's quite something to reflect on just what it felt like to be in that moment, but then also to move through it. And like you said, you know, our team is action oriented. So I think for us, it's therapeutic to take action. And we saw that, you know, in all the ways that you described around our conversations with the industry, but we also saw it internally with respect to aligning our business and aligning our, um, you know, our operations, our finances, and our response strategy to um, COVID almost instantaneously. So the moment that we were hitting the ground for external communications, you know, your team was hitting the ground and um, Don and others, you know, with respect to helping to align our our um, efforts internally, making sure we were qualifying for the PPP, talking to our banks, talking to our lawyers, putting policies into place with respect to how we are going to enter our offices when we re-enter. I mean, just the volume of work. And I will say um, another piece that I was really proud of looking back into 2020 was just the way that our team solved problems together. So, you know, it's one thing to solve problems from a position of leadership, right? Like you have the authority, you can jump in and, and start to solve those problems as a leader. But when you start to see your team problem solving with each other, when people are problem solving horizontally, when you know you have a really good team because everyone was invested in making sure that the outcome of 2020 and our pandemic response was positive for everybody, including, you know, picking up slack around childcare or adjusting schedules last minute when people had to be out. So there are any number of reasons why you know, work was disrupted, but, um, but that our team solved those problems together was really cool, really cool to see. Um, so yeah, I'm proud of that. So, you know, when we think about 2021, there's been so much that has happened since we last spoke, and I, I can't remember exactly when our last check-in was, I want to say maybe in fall when we last talked to each other um, in this, I mean, we talk to each other all the time, of course, Sarah, but in the podcast format, and um, most of us are all still working remotely. You know, we're seeing this large rollout of COVID-19 vaccines, and we now have a new president in office and all of these new and kind of exciting cabinet appointments. Um, so I'm just curious to know, you know, um, what excites you most about the year in front of us, about 2021? Well, sticking with the topic of the new administration, I'm just excited that we have an administration that believes in science. Um, it feels like a low bar, but as a biologist by training, it's been really hard to see um, science so marginalized and dismissed. And so super excited that we're talking about science again and <laughs> take in like that the administration is um, you know, seeking counsel from scientists as they make decisions. I was thrilled as much of our team was that one of the first things the administration did was rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. You know, it, that's a bold statement about how seriously um, we're gonna take things. I think that's really important. You know, having that done on day one um, was a big deal. Um, you know, I'm also excited that a lot of the, the work around climate is being framed in the context of the job opportunities that clean energy can create. And I know it's going to be a long haul and to say like that problem will be solved in 2021 is certainly um, not something I expect, but the fact that we are moving forward and really framing um, the opportunity clean energy provides in the context of job opportunities, uh, the fact that the cabinet that's been appointed and is being appointed is so diverse. Um, that we have, you know, leaders in the new administration that really look like the all of us as a country is really exciting. Um, you know, and then from the Illum perspective, I'm excited that at some point this year, we might uh, be able to see each other's faces in real life and 
get back to collaborating together in our offices and, and seeing each other um, outside of the tiny video square that we've gotten so used to. So I think it's, it's you know, it's simple things, some return to normalcy and it's big things, you know, really seeing um, what I hope is significant action on the clean energy and climate front that I'm excited about. So, you know, that's, that's my list. <laughs> what about your list, Dan? Jeez, you've covered a lot. You know, um, as I sort of step back from it, I think from an Illum perspective, specifically um, our company, I'm excited to lean into a lot of the energy and capacity we created in 2020 and to find new ways to build out relationships within communities we typically don't collaborate with, um, to identify new partnerships uh, from a business standpoint, and then also to uh, really leverage some of these communication platforms to broaden the conversations that we're having with our clients and the people we serve. And I find that all very, very exciting and um, fun to take on as a new challenge, because I do think, you know, we are going to need to settle in a little bit to our Zoom squares, <laughs> even though I know we'll be in person um, this year. I feel optimistic about that. I also think um, things are going to shift in some pretty fundamental ways in terms of our willingness and ability to all get together at a conference, for example, in the way we used to, and get to see our events and things getting smaller and more intimate, which was you know, it, which is exciting and could be very cool. Um, I'm really excited to also see from the administration standpoint how these different departments are actually going to collaborate. You know, uh, we have some really compelling appointments going into the DOE and the EPA and the Department of Transportation, all of which have both equity and, and very aggressive climate change mitigation goals and um, reparative work as it relates to environmental racism, as it relates to um, pollutant generation as a result of dirty energy supplies. And I just would love to see some very integrated and thoughtful coordination at the federal level. But as the federal government steps forward, I'm also hoping that the federal government recognizes all of the capacity that's been built in the past four years during the Trump administration at the local government level. We really saw our local government and our leaders step forward, not only with the um, pandemic response, but certainly as it related to uh, climate change, especially if you think back to those really early years of the administration, the first year of the administration, when it became very clear that um, that we were stepping out of Paris and that we were, you know, receding um, from the world stage, states like um, California stepped forward, like New York stepped forward, and they not only continued to do what they were doing, they doubled down. And then you saw um, even more stepping up, you know, in regions of the U.S. that are um, not, not talked about as much, like Georgia, like, um, you know, uh, Illinois, um, parts of um, the Southeast. So I think, um, I think there's a real opportunity for the federal government to leverage that local capacity and to build on it rather than trying to supplant it. What I would hope doesn't happen is that the federal government steps forward and um, unintentionally sort of overrides some of that progress. I hope that it builds on that progress. So I'm hoping to see that in 2021. So Sarah, speaking of local government, a lot of people may not know this, but you sat on the Dane County Climate Task Force. And as Biden really stretches us to meet climate change mitigation goals, what do you think the role will be for local communities versus the federal government? What do you think the American people are really going to expect from us at the local level? It's a it's a great question, and um, you know, building off what you just said, I do agree. I think it's going to be really important to find a way to continue to leverage all these local efforts and initiatives on top of the federal efforts that are going to start taking place. And I think one of the things that um, sitting on the task force, or I, I guess I should clarify, was the chair of the Energy Efficiency Working Group for the task force, so really focused on the opportunities with energy efficiency. But one of the questions we had as we were working through recommendations, and as you can imagine, there were a lot of recommendations, was, is there money? Is there money to fund this? And I think that's the great challenge that local communities, counties, cities have 
when trying to push forth their efforts. So I do hope that there is a piece of the federal action that really seriously looks at how much more effectively local uh, government and entities can be in affecting change within their communities and that there's a, a mechanism to help fund and support these efforts. Um, in particular now, you know, counties, I know the county in particular, um, being closer to what's going on there, it has been really strapped by COVID. You know, they've had to invest dollars in infrastructure in um, responding to COVID that was an unplanned cost. And certainly that comes from somewhere. So, you know, one of my great hopes is that <laughs> There is, there is a mechanism, as I said, in the federal work to help fund the local community work. And I think that the, these local you know, government-private partnerships are so important because for people within the community, these are efforts they can see, they're efforts they can participate in. It's much more direct. Um, you know, I, I, I know that there's going to be so much work done at the federal level. Some of it will be, you know, international work. Some of it's sort of that big scale work, um, you know, transportation issues. But, you know, people also want ways to engage and they want to see impact in their community. And so, yeah, to your point, I think there's such opportunity to create partnerships and leverage all these groups that have been doing the hard work for four years while the federal government was silent. And I think people are going to expect um, to continue to see work locally, but I think they're also going to expect to see that it's a little bit less of a fight uh, to get the attention, <laughs> to get the funding, and to see um, pro progress forward. So one thing I hope is that when I'm getting emails from our local um, organizing efforts that are really trying to push climate initiatives in the county, that they're less, um, uh, they're less in need of <laughs> people, uh, you know, stepping up to speak out in support of these initiatives and more become more of a update on the next great thing that's happened. Um, some of us are a little tired. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, it's been really interesting to sort of think about and, you know, like reflecting on our careers over many years. I, I just did the math on mine um, this morning and it's kind of surprised myself. But um you know, been through a few administration changes that have been pro or um, not really pro clean energy initiatives. And it's such a nice moment to move from a sort of somber feeling and feeling uh, as though you, you have to fight for everything you're hoping to accomplish in what should ultimately be a bipartisan project, mm -hmm. one would think, um, to actually being able to celebrate, which we got to do last week. And I, I just want to take a moment um, to talk a little bit about the Clean Energy for Biden inaugural ball that we sponsored last week. It was such an interesting event. I mean, when was the last time you were at a quote-unquote ball or gala remotely sitting in little um, digital chairs and talking to people that, you know, you don't see until they zoom in and, you know, <laughs> you see their face for the first time on screen. But, um, but it was also cool because even though we were on these screens, everybody seemed really excited. So when you are um, thinking bigger about the administration at the federal level, and we've talked about local government and what it's doing, um, is there anything that, you know, inspired you that night or anything that you are thinking about moving forward that you're really looking forward to? Well, first of all, I do have to say that I'm not sure virtual balls will become the norm. I think I think maybe more virtual conferences, but that was a very interesting um, way to attend an event. And if people were tracking, I, I had put out a call for votes and wearing your slippers definitely wins over wearing uh, dress shoes when you're attending a virtual ball. But um, yeah, you know, I think it's it it is this feeling that maybe we will start swimming with the current instead of against the current. Um, and it, it, you know, it's not a specific, but it, it is the thing I am, I feel most excited about. And kind of going back to your point of, wow, we've been doing this a long time. And I, I can always remember because I started my job in energy right after uh, the year 2000. So, you know, we all thought every everything was going to quit working. And instead, I started a new job in energy efficiency. So the math is easy for me. And I remember saying a couple months ago, I can't believe I've been doing this for 20 years, and we are still where we are. 
you know, <laughs> like we are mm -hmm. still where we are. It's still a fight. And um, so, as I said earlier, I think, you know, I'm excited to see uh, what happens at the federal level, but I'm also, you know, hoping that the opportunity for a loom um, expands as well. And, you know, we're doing some interesting work focused on workforce development and how clean energy can create jobs and can be used to support um, historically disadvantaged communities. And, and my hope is that with with this emphasis on clean energy and job creation and equity that you know we'll be able to do more work in that space it's so important um, i'm excited about uh, some of the work we've been doing that's looking at how you can pair health and energy programming how those fundings can leverage each other sort of to your point Anne, about your hope that at the federal level the different um appointees can figure out how they can work collaboratively when they, you know, they have their own departments, they have their own efforts. We're, we're seeing ways in which health efforts are trying to pair with energy efforts to maximize impacts and um, support uh, customers who are at higher risk or who have been underserved more broadly. So, I, you know, I'm excited for the opportunity to see where that goes and continue our work supporting those types of efforts. Um, you know, how we define and create equity and access to clean energy and programs um, it feels really exciting to me. So it's it's sort of a, I don't know, I could go on and on because I, I, I do see um, there's like this opening, right, that we've, we've been able to sort of um, noodle away at the edges of some of these really important topics. And now we're starting to see more investment in these topics, more um, effort to understand and really not just pay lip service to, you know, how do we use these programs to create jobs? How are we equi equitably serving customers, but actually seeing real investment in that? Um, and so that's, you know, one of the, those are the types of projects I'm really excited about in 2021. Um, I know for you, you've been excited about some work we've been doing in the transportation sector. So, you know, we know decarbonizing the transportation sector is a priority for the Biden administration. And you recently worked on a statewide transportation electrification planning process in Arizona. So, you know, what did you learn from that work? What are you excited about moving forward when you think about that piece of the, the puzzle? Yeah. Well, it's a nice brain break, I think, for those of us who work on buildings that are with these static objects to start thinking about decarbonizing transportation, which is obviously anything but static, you know. So the challenges are really different, but they're also very similar. And I think um, the same fundamental questions apply, right? You know, um, the first question is, you know, are these technologies viable? Do consumers want them? Do customers want EVs? Are electric or is electric fleet a, a viable option for businesses? You know, what, what are the needs there? And I don't know that we fully understand that. I think we're still trying to figure that out with a lot of these technologies. You know, and then the second question, of course, is then how do we get these technologies to market as fast as possible and as equitably as possible? Because obviously we need more than our early adopters to really transform and decarbonize transportation. Um, so a lot of the challenges remain the same, but what we have are more immediate benefits that I think are more obvious to the average consumer, like lowered local air pollution levels, you know, things you can really see and feel, a quieter environment, honestly, just the, um, the rumble and sounds of vehicles that we take for granted as part of just what it means to, say, live in a city like Tucson, for example, and what it might mean to live in a, a quiet city where you can actually say hear the birds instead of all of the machinery kind of <laughs> going around um, going around you. So I think there are these real benefits that are much more tangible and interesting than um, than um, maybe some of the work that we do to the average consumer. Of course, we find it all very interesting. Um, you know, the project that um, you were referring to, though, Sarah, was um, the Arizona. Um, phase two statewide transportation electrification plan and um, the utilities TEP and APS were charged with developing that plan. And they had this incredibly ambitious stakeholder um, goal, which Illum helped for them 
to create a very open stakeholder process that included more than the usual suspects. And so typically, you know, in, in any state, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, you'll have, you know, your commissions, and then you'll have uh, stakeholders or intervening groups um, that are represent any number of interests, be it um, certain segments of the population or uh, different um, specific technology initiatives or um, the environment. But um, what they really wanted to do was to expand that to local government, to expand that to interest groups that really moved beyond um, beyond the usual folks who are actively intervening um, in public process and decision making. And it, it amounted to a 500 person stakeholder group that then was subdivided into multiple um, groups that really were sort of um, tackling these really tough topics. And what I thought was very cool about it was, one, the amount of enthusiasm and work that the public was willing to put into the challenge, that just being asked really brought people forward and that there was an incredible amount of investment in tackling some of these hard challenges. But then also um, just the, the sort of receptivity and willingness of um, the utilities to put themselves out there and to um, have these conversations. So some of the topics that were really interesting um, for folks to sort of tackle and take on were questions of equity. You know, how do we make sure that there's equity across multifamily, single family charging options? Uh, how do we make sure that people have access to electric vehicles? Is there a way to bring down the cost of electric vehicles? And then there's equity about Space, you know, again, vehicles move, houses don't. So how do you, how do you <laughs> make sure that you are developing your corridors in such a way that you can effectively charge all of these vehicles, both um, personal vehicles as well as, say, um, fleet options across huge distances? And if anyone's been to the southwest, you know that we have a lot of open desert here. So it's not a small, you know, um, undertaking to build out that infrastructure. Uh, so it's just, it's been really exciting, very cool to, to see. Um, I think we'll see as the technology improves more adoption, but there's still quite a bit of work for us to do with respect to getting, um, getting these technologies on the road. Sure. And you grew up in an automotive state. I don't know if people know that. You're a, a native of Michigan, so the automotive industry has sort of surrounded you much of your life. What do you hope to see as the former governor, Jennifer Granholm, takes the seat as uh, Secretary of Energy? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Well, I'm, I'm all pro uh, women in leadership, and I feel like Michigan's producing some really strong governors, you know, in the past 20 years. But, um, you know, what's cool about Jennifer Granholm is that she's really clear-eyed, and she has a lot of energy. So I have a feeling that she's going to be um, – for lack of a better term, the sort of cheerleader that we need for DOE and we'll get stuff done. Um, what, you know, I, the question I first asked myself is she was really um, pushing for local jobs, local development, and really supplying lithium, copper, rare earth materials, nickel, et cetera, through U.S. mining. The first thing I thought was, you know, again, with a history in the automotive sector, well, this has really a huge labor impact. What does it mean to um, promote mining that we know can have um, and has had in the past very disastrous environmental impacts, but then also, on the other hand, has the opportunity to create an incredible number of jobs? But do we want to be trading dirty coal mining for dirty rare earth mining? You know, um, and what does that mean for labor? And I think that we need to be really clear-eyed about what kinds of jobs, domestic jobs we want to create and what the environmental impacts of that are. So um, I have this story. I don't know if I ever told this to you, Sarah, but when we, um, Eric and I, were leaving California to move to Michigan, we moved back there for about three years since where we launched Shalom, as you know, we were driving through Montana, and we ended up staying for one night in Butte, Montana, in the Copper King Mansion. And it was this bed and breakfast that was this super huge, super creepy mansion, and <laughs> with all this like strange antiques. And they even had a birdcage shower, which you should look up. It's like really bizarre. We didn't use it. I couldn't. I couldn't. But the um, but I thought it was one totally appropriate that we ended up in the you know the mansion of this man basically developed the co copper industry, which developed you know, electricity throughout the United States. 
But the next morning we went down to sit at a table and everyone um, who was seated at the table was a guest at the mansion. And we um, started introducing ourselves and we went, I went first, our family went first and I introduced myself as working in energy efficiency and then we're from California and I was really excited about all of these green energy initiatives. And then the next person seated next to me was kind of getting flushed and was, I think, irritated with me. And he introduced himself as an oil prospector who was in, just had come back from China and was developing oil fields in uh, Montana. And then the next guy, who is incredibly charming and the diplomat of the table, introduced himself as lieutenant um, gubernatorial candidate, who a former Navy SEAL, who uh, was interested in building jobs in Montana. So this breakfast conversation turned into this really elaborate discussion on the pros and cons of the clean energy industry and the ways in which the clean energy industry was leaving behind states like Montana and not creating jobs and not communicating, you know, whether um, not communicating the imperatives of climate change that we were all seeing in the cities. Because if you drive through central Montana, you wouldn't know that there was a climate issue, Mm -hmm. right? There There aren't people. But when you start to hit the central cities, you can see how, um, you know, drug markets, for example, have really decimated the state and that unemployment is rampant. So it kept coming back to what, what's in it for my people, what's in it for this state. And, um, and it's exciting to think that maybe there is a better way to do this and maybe there's a clean way to do it. And I'm not a geologist. I don't know how one does that. But maybe there is a way to bring jobs to Montana through all of this, and I think that could be really cool. But that story had always, or that moment had always stuck with me because I kept thinking and have always thought since then, we really are failing to broaden the impacts of this, and it's really time that we figure that out. Um, So, Sarah, kind of switching gears a little bit, um, what's your thought on job creation? You know, you mentioned workforce development a few times. I was just talking about it. But... Do you think that there's ever going to be a point where we are like not having these arguments over breakfast tables in random, you know, bed and breakfast in the middle of the country and that we'll actually see real jobs and widespread support for clean energy and job development? I, I do. And I, it's funny. I have, I have a story that I wasn't going to tell, but your story made me think of it and it, it completely relates to this. So about, at least 10 years ago, it was um, maybe about at the time of the ARA funding. And um, I was asked by the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Wisconsin, uh, Barbara Lawton, to come in and give testimony to a state legislative committee. They were trying to do a sales tax holiday for Energy Star products, um, you know, just to encourage people to buy more efficient products. And I had to, to, provide, I had to answer questions, you know, get grilled by a group of legislators. And if people know Wisconsin, which people know Wisconsin better than they ever thought they would, um, politics, uh, it's not unusual for us to have a a Democratic governor and then Republican um, House of Legislature. So wasn't a lot of support or love for the Energy Star sales tax holiday. And I remember one of the questions was from what had to be the oldest sitting uh, state representative maybe in history of the United States, who, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, the opportunities with uh, the, um, with Energy Star qualified products. We had a retailer there who basically said he was able to open a second location because of the program and how much more of the high efficiency products they were selling. And then this, this gentleman um, started to speak and he, his whole concern was what about the utility jobs? We're going to put all these utility people out of work because we're going to sell less energy. You know, he really believed it. And it's funny because I think, man, that was a long time ago. And, um, I remember my answer being, there are jobs in this space. There are jobs in energy efficiency. There are jobs in clean energy. We're going to see this happen. Um, and it's been slow going. I think we know our industry has grown. We know how hard it is to hire um, in our industry. So we know there's a need, there's competition uh, for employees. Um, but I actually feel really optimistic that we are going to start to see that shift quicken. Um, you know, I think that the arguments are going to start to die down a little bit. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that 
you know, we hear um, more of our utility colleagues talking about uh, the work they're doing uh, for carbon-free uh, energy production. You know, we know the utilities are planning for that. They're looking at the hiring they need to do um, to be the organizations that can um, be the hub of that infrastructure for the United States. Um, you know, you still kind of hear the arguments that, you know, clean energy, clean economy is going to is going to destroy the economy. But I'm, I'm noticing those those uh, talking heads tend to be more and more from um, groups that are being paid by small uh, cohorts of industry versus sort of representing the utility industry as a whole. Um, you know, so I, I think we're going to still hear rattling of the job loss, but I, I think it's going to decline as we start to see the jobs happen. You know, I was talking to one of our clients, Power Home Solar, who's a, uh, they put solar panels on residential homes all over the United States, and they had their biggest year ever in 2020. They can't hire fast enough. They need electricians, you know, skilled jobs that pay well, um, you know, assistance to put panels on houses, sales jobs. Um, you know, he even was bummed my son wasn't in one of the states they work in because they need they need guys who like to climb up high really badly. <laughs> and we all know my son Quinn likes to climb up things. Um, you know, so I, I think the proof is in the pudding. As we see the jobs coming, it will be harder and harder to make the argument that this is something, you know, only the left believes possible. Um, you know, I've tried to, we, we've had a number of publications this last year. I did an op-ed here locally that got some great feedback. And, you know, we had um, an article in one of our local magazines on Illum and job creation. And so I think the, the more we see mainstream media telling the stories of the jobs that are being created, the more we get it out there. I, I think that shift is going to happen. I think those arguments are going to start to decline, but people have to see the jobs and we have to tell the story of the jobs. And, you know, I think we're doing our part to do that, but everybody who works in this space and in our industry needs to be doing the same so that, that yeah. we can counter the argument with, here are the jobs, here's the need, you know, so I, I feel more optimistic. I, 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 you know, like I said, I've been saying this for 15 years, but this is one where I finally feel like I think we're going to see a fast shift. Yeah, I so, hope so. I hope you're right. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, jobs for everyone and all different types of jobs, not just jobs that require, you know, advanced degrees, but technical jobs and jobs for people who just like to climb up high on things and jobs for people who like to serve their community. So, you know, Anne, you moderated our whole series on equity in 2020. And, you know, I know jobs and climate justice uh, were, were key topics in some of those webinars. Um, what did you learn from that series that might help us think about the social imperative of Biden's climate plan and, and the change that we need to make? Yeah, it's such a great question and jumping off on the job thing and some of the things we discussed earlier, like the introspective DEI work we were doing at Illum and, and continue to do, um, you know, really does underscore for me that unless we make very intentional moves in the direction of, um, sort of democratizing access to these jobs, and making sure that all people have access to these jobs, we are we are going to find the same individuals, the same communities benefiting from this economic growth. And as you said, we need jobs for all people, and that means all types of labor, and that means people from all backgrounds and from all communities. So white, black, brown, et cetera, you know, everybody needs to have an opportunity to participate in this sector. And as you know, um, our industry in particular, I would say the really, the really tiny little niche of energy efficiency and specifically like energy efficiency consulting is a predominantly white field and has been for years. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, but one thing that I'm learning as a business owner is that without really very intentional action, it's, it's very difficult to um, bring people into a workforce that they don't know about. And um, that is very much about um, intentional workforce development in communities of color and low-income communities or marginalized communities for any number of reasons, um, but also um, making sure that we are, uh, you know, sort of making clear why these jobs are great jobs and really extolling the benefits of them. You know, I always think about my hometown when I think about things like workforce development, because I grew up in this industrial community where 
you know, we saw all of the factory jobs move um, to Mexico with NAFTA and have since moved to China. And um, people lost their good unionized jobs. And what came in behind those jobs were um, drugs, honestly, and informal economies that were keeping people fed, but also devastating communities, you know, and that devastation impacted communities of color in my hometown before it impacted white communities. And I think similarly, you see the same effects happen in the reverse when you start to see benefits. And so we have to really, as an industry, make sure that as we're developing this economic engine, that the benefits that we are producing are intentional and that they are in my I would think reparative, meaning that we're undoing some of the long-term um, harm that has been done, particularly to communities of color who have had to live next to, say, our um, power plant for any number of reasons, and um, and to you know put some of those investments back into communities that communities they themselves get to govern and drive, as we were kind of talking about earlier, making sure that that is not a paternal, you know, reaching over and saying, like, we're going to do this for you, but rather let's fund these initiatives that you have in place because we know that there's so much work being done at the grassroots level. I also think looking forward, um, one of the things that, I, you know, our, we learned from our DEI series, but also that I think is important to constantly remember is that um, we have to also have protective policies. One thing that I think was um, alarming to folks um, about this past administration was that there was this rollback of all of these protective policies that we took for granted, things that um, protections that were put in place um, that protected um, marginalized and disadvantaged communities that, um, you know, once rolled back, we sort of realized how how uh, precarious it is, how easily some of this work can be undone. And so I think as we think about our policies and we think about um, what we want to build moving forward, I think we need to also think about those things that we value and how we protect those things that we value. And for us at Illum, what we value is a, a safe and healthy environment in which everyone can thrive irrespective of their, their backgrounds um, and their race and ethnicity. Um, so, you know, that was a lot. <laughs> I, feel really, <laughs> I feel really optimistic, I do, um, about what we'll be able to create if we can all sort of collaborate. But Sarah, I know you also have a lot of thoughts on these issues. And um, as the market becomes more bullish on clean energy, how do you think that we're going to um, keep our most marginalized communities engaged and not leave them behind? Well, it's it's interesting because right before we hopped on to record this, I was sitting in on an AESP session, um, a virtual conference, and this the session was focused on understanding the why in DEI. And first of all, um, you know, it, it struck me. I had a moment where I thought I have never in 21 years of doing this work um, had the opportunity to uh, watch a panel where every one of the speakers was a woman, was an African-American woman. And it, the, the thinking like this shouldn't be a thing that I'm so struck by that like, wow, this is happening. Um, but thrilled that it is now and finally a thing. And it was a really um, interesting session. And a couple of the things that really stuck with me sort of related to your question, you know, is, um, how in order to make sure you're not leaving people behind, that you are, you know, really bringing in diverse perspectives and diverse people is that you have to go into the communities, you know, recruit from within the communities you are trying to serve. Um, you have to name what you're trying to accomplish and, and not hide uh, what you're trying to accomplish. So as I, I think about this, you know, it's a big question and, and we know, you know, the impacts of um, emissions in the United States are global. We're the largest producer. We're affecting people halfway around the world, but we're also affecting people, you know, in our own backyards. And clean energy does offer the opportunity to bring back, um, you know, a, a whole network of good paying jobs that can help people and help the environment. But again, I think, you know, taking sort of lessons from, um, 
some of the speakers that I listened to earlier, one of the things that really struck me was um, our friend Brandy Brown made the comment that um, because our industry is unknown, it may not feel safe. And, you know, one mm -hmm. of the things we're going to have to do to really make sure the energy industry doesn't leave people behind is help people understand this industry, um, help people feel like this is a safe industry to work in, that, um, you know, that these are good jobs, that these are great opportunities. And um, I, I'll pair that uh, with one of the things that Carla Walker Miller said, which was, um, just because you have a good company, a great team, doesn't mean you're going to recruit a diverse workforce. So there's a ton of work to be done. Um, but I, I think that if we go in with intentionality and recognize that we have um, sort of been detrimentally exclusive as an industry, uh, we can start, you know, we can start <laughs> uh, to ensure that the benefits of these jobs and these opportunities are made available to everyone. You know, we, again, need, need to be working within communities with uh, local members of communities um, really making sure that we're not coming in with sort of that uh, savior approach that we've all seen happen in the past with some of these programs. You know, we're going to come into your neighborhood and we're going to weatherize 50 homes, but knocking on your doors and people are like, what is this? Who are you? And why should I let you in my home? You know, so I think we've learned a lot of lessons, but the, the important piece for us as an industry is going to be ensuring that we both recognize uh, what we've done wrong in the past, uh, how we've approached this incorrectly in the past, um, recognize the need to really work with with communities, with the people in communities, and recognize the need to really diversify ourselves as an industry so that we have people in our teams who are questioning our choices and making us really think about who we are serving and who we are not serving and are we doing this well and are we paying attention to those people who are most in need. So it's... Mm -hmm. um, it's a big job, but I'm, I'm so excited by the conversations that are happening and that people are listening. You know, there were 90 people in that session today um, oh, awesome. and there were a lot of other sessions going on. So it's, it's, it gives, it gives me a lot of hope and I'm really grateful that we're having the conversations about that, this being hard. Um, mm -hmm. And if we weren't, I'd be concerned we're not going to get there. But the fact that we're having these hard conversations and acknowledging how much work it's going to be and that we all have to do repair work ourselves and we have to be thinking about this differently, um, uh, I think that's going to be a key piece in making sure we're, we're not leaving people behind. That's such an awesome point. And one of the things just to add that, um, that I found really um, powerful that Sherard Robbins, who with Visceral Change, is uh, consulting with us for DEI to Loom really said was, you know, you have to do the work on yourself alongside of your outreach because you have to have a hospitable company to bring people into, you know, yeah. and if you're not, if you're not doing the work in parallel, then you are creating an environment that isn't welcoming. And I think that there are all these ways, especially when we do, you know, as an industry do-gooding work, right? I mean, it's sort of like inherently do-gooding. I think it's easy to assume that um, good intentions create safe spaces, and we know mm -hmm. that that's not the case, right? It's um, it's important that we, you know, we are critical, as you said, and kind of doing that work ourselves. So I really think that's exciting, and I really hope that I get to see this panel because um, I would love to. <laughs> I think I think yeah. they're going to post them. It is. Yeah, I think they're awesome. posting them next week. So I'll shamelessly plug uh, AEST's <laughs> recordings of their sessions that are going to be available next week. And, you know, I think you're right, Anne. We've been talking about this, as you mentioned, internally. We have, uh, um, we're working with Sherard, who's helping us uh, think about how, you know, Illum is addressing things as a company. Um, and I think we've recognized that there's a lot more we can be doing, too. So it, it's exciting to see opportunity and to, to, to say we're going to take something on and really try to, to make a change. So, you know, we've covered a lot today, <laughs> um, some big topics. I think each topic could have been its own podcast, but, you know, on a lighter note, it's, uh, it's, I think it's still technically New Year's resolution time as long as it's still January. So what, what goals do you have for 2021? Oh, geez. Um, my, I have a couple, I have a goal of, ideally finishing a book and reading it end to end. I don't know what it is about 2020 
that got me so distractible. Well, I do know, but I've been very distractible <laughs> and um, have not been able to like properly finish a novel. And so that's one of my goals. Um, I'm sort of ashamed to admit that. But then going in, um, Sarah, you know, I've been doing a lot of weightlifting um, in the past couple of years to kind of get my adrenaline fixed. And so my goal for 2021 is to hit a 300-pound deadlift and a 300-pound squat. And I think I can do it. I think I can do it. So that's my big goal. That's impressive. I was excited to get uh, up to 115 on the squat the other day. So I don't, I don't see 300 in my future. Um, you know, like you, I, I just put a general like read more uh, in volume and variety. I think we do a lot of reading, right? Like a lot of our job is about reading, keeping up to speed, but it is, it does then make you kind of tired when you go to pick up that novel. But um, I'm almost done with my first book of the year. And, and there are years where that has been my only book. So like you, um, reading is on my list. Um, you know, I, I am looking forward to being able to travel. I, I miss travel more for fun than for work. I think, as you alluded to earlier, I hope we're at a place where we recognize that, that there can be less travel for work and we can still be productive so that there's maybe more time to travel for fun, you know, and see all the people we haven't been able to see this year in person and like actually give them hugs. Um, you know, I love having a good party, so... <laughs> I hope I hope to be able to do that at least once in 2021. But, you know, then there's the whole list. Like you said, there's the usual focus on, you know, health, moving more, being more mindful. Like, you know, the whole, everybody's got their long list. I'm going to learn four languages. I'm going to clean my closet, you know, the usual resolutions. So I got to pare down the list, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pro moving parties to the top of your list. I think that's the way to approach it. Well, you know, we're known for our parties, so... Yeah, exactly. you'll be first on the invite. Oh, good, good. Hopefully, we'll get COVID under control in Arizona, and they'll let me travel. <laughs> yes, my number one goal. Well, Sarah, it's been super awesome to connect, and I really love these podcasts because we often are working all the time alongside each other, but we rarely get a chance to sit back and talk about issues together, which is always really fun and energizing. So thank you so much for joining us for our first podcast of 2021. Absolutely. It's great to be here. That's awesome. Well, we hope everybody who's listening enjoyed this podcast. Um, we hope you have a lot of resolutions, but not too many, and big plans for 2021. Uh, my name is Ann Doherty, and you're listening to Alum's podcast, Current. Current is produced by Alum's production team. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening, everybody.